Well, settle in, everyone, uh, for a bit of teaching. And uh, I have to tell you that this is a bit of a... um, It is a teaching, more of a classroom-type thing. And so I have provided you with a message notes, which I think you're going to appreciate, if for no other reason, just to keep you from being bored. But uh, if that's not the case, hopefully it will help you engage in what's going on and think hard. So there's some blanks to fill in, and hopefully I will get all of those answered for you as we go through and not miss any of them. We are talking about exactly what Jason and the band were uh, singing and worshiping with. We're thinking about how does the Word of God speak, and we're going to dig into it in thick fashion, and so uh, hopefully it's not so thick that you can't understand it, but I don't know what else to do these days. This is just where I'm at, and it's also where I think culture's at. In my early years of following Christ, if someone would have asked me, How do you know the Bible is true? I would have had several answers that I had thought about and worked on for years. I hope you're thinking at this moment what you would have answered that or would answer right now. I would have answered back then because the Bible tells me so. It says it is true. I would have appealed to Christianity, the Christian faith, the grand tradition as it's called, in the church to say the church believes it's in the inspired word of God and that it is true. And then second, I would have said the Bible is also true because it works. It's a good book. It actually will teach you about finances and marriage and raising children and and doing things. You know, how to live life. It's a pragmatic book. It's the instruction manual for life. Third, I would have answered Uh, Well, let me take you on a technical tour of how the Bible is error-free. It's infallible. And I would have walked you through verse by verse, meticulously starting in Genesis and going all the way to Revelations, showing that it is not uh, a falsehood. It's not an error-filled book. And then fourth, I would have shown you that all the little bits of stories and characters and Moses and, you know, Hezekiah and Jesus and John and all the rest of them, They all fit into a grand narrative, a huge overarching story. It's one big story with lots of little sort of stories, little stories scattered throughout, but it all fits. That's what I would have answered, those four things. But these days, our culture is different because I think there was a time when you could get up in America and say, You have sinned and you need Jesus and people would have understood exactly what you're talking about. But the lights went on for me uh, a few years ago when my son, uh, as a young grade schooler, we're at a church here in town and he was doing, um, I think it's called Upwards Basketball. And I'm sitting there and at halftime, Upwards is a faith-based type sports, you know, league for little kids teaching them basketball. And they get up at halftime and they do a gospel presentation, you know? And it was an awesome presentation. It was clear. But I looked around the gymnasium and parents and grandparents and everybody were all kind of checking out their shoes and looking around and yawning and checking their phone discreetly. And it hit me. I thought, 
This person is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is absolutely uninteresting and unengaging and does not work for anybody in the room hardly. They've all been there, done that, got the sticker and the T-shirt. They don't care. Culture is shifting, everyone, and we must understand where we're at in our one lifetime that God has given us. Appeals to dogma, like I did, pragmatism, infallibility, and covenant story may all very well be true, but they aren't selling well on Main Street. The last thing you want to be is a dogmatic Christian. People don't like that. It doesn't fit. And I'm not just trying to win some sort of popularity contest here. I'm just simply saying it doesn't engage. It's not how they think. So this morning, I want to focus on how we read Scripture. Not how to read Scripture, but how we read it. How do we read Scripture? Because I believe Christians... And those outside the Christian faith understand, I mean, misunderstand what the Bible is and how it is supposed to be read. And we're going to have to take a journey to understand that. At the end of our time, I want you to be able to walk out of here. You may not be absolutely clear about what I'm going to present. I I understand that. But I want you to begin to think, I must begin to think differently about the world and the universe and the Bible and my faith. This is kind of like a, uh, you know, install a new update sort of a thing here, okay? So pay attention to your study sheet. And like I said, I apologize if I miss anything. Come ask me afterwards or uh, if, you, if I miss an answer on it. Let's begin then with this question. Why is Scripture Scripture? The answer then flashes back. This is back to the creedal dog, dogma uh, doctrinal thing comes out of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, if you brought your Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 3, or if you have it on your phone or an iPad or a computer or whatever here. And this is what it says, and perhaps you've heard this if you've been around the church at any time. All Scripture is inspired by God, okay? It's useful for teaching. Hey, we're doing that right now. For reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. In short, the Bible is inspired by God. That's why we know it's true. That's the old answer. And those, those words are then useful in the Bible. And it has an end goal, good work, that we'd actually produce something good out of this inspired book called the Bible. It doesn't take too much effort to realize that God is moving men and women throughout the Bible. Their stories are, are full of movement. The Spirit is leading and teaching people through these Bible stories. Abraham is moving. He's becoming the father of a great nation. Moses brings the covenant. The prophets declare you're doing it wrong and you need to get back on track. Then the incarnation of God, Jesus, comes. And the covenant is complete and moves us into a new era that we actually really celebrate next week at Pentecost. The coming of the church and the Holy Spirit being with everyone. There's movement in all of this. The words on the page are actually creating a worldview, and this, I think, fills in on your thing. Scripture is a product of the Holy Spirit. Scripture is a product of the Holy Spirit. The words create a worldview. They create a world. The Holy Spirit of God creates when it hovers over the void in the very beginning of Genesis and the waters are parted, and the land appears. 
How did that happen? Through the Word of God. That same Spirit that is producing Scripture then hovers over Mary, a young woman, and she conceives a child who will be Jesus. Don't miss the connection between the Genesis creation through the Word and the Word creating a child inside of Mary. It's very, very deliberate, and it's supposed to connect. The thought of God, the Spirit, the world, then, reveals God's action in space and time. The Word creates events. It has creative force and power, whether it be the universe or whether it be a small child. The psalmist, then, adds in what we would call sort of a natural theology. Psalm 19, if you're looking it up somewhere. Psalm 19 says this. It begins this way. The psalmist understands this creative word of the creator. The heavens are telling the glory of God, the psalmist says. The firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth what? Speech, words. And night to night declares knowledge. But... There's no speech actually uttered. There's no words articulated. There's no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Yet their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So, in short, the day, the night, the stars, the, the, the cycle of the days is declaring is a word, in quotes, of God. It has its own voice saying, I have been created, I have been made. I am being spoken forth. All without actually using any language, right? So at this point, someone may ask, very reasonably so, great, you're making this big appeal to say like, hey, we got authority. Yes, we do. We got authority. And what about you? And, and that's great. So Paul, Bible, Dan, where are you making such claims? And this is a very good question. And this is the question that's actually being asked in culture right now. Who are you to be saying that the Bible is true? It's just another literary work. You go to college, and they're going to have the Bible as literature, as a course, right? You're in good company then if you ask the question, where do you find your claim to authority? Jesus also then was asked the same thing. Jesus, by whose authority do you do these things? And what sort of things is he talking about? He's messing with the symbols of the Jewish faith. He's rewriting their law, the Torah. He messes with the temple. I'll tear down this temple and raise it up in three days. He messes with kosher. He doesn't wash his hands. The disciples don't either. He messes with the Sabbath. He heals on the Sabbath. He heals a blind man on the Sabbath there in John 9. On and on and on. At the Sermon on the Mount in John, I mean in Matthew chapter 6, verses 39 through 42, Matthew chapter 6, if you're looking it up, he says this, you've heard it said An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's what the Old Testament says. Justice, man. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But then Jesus says, Do not resist an evildoer. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. If anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give them your your outer coat as well. And your cloak, your inner cloak. Give them everything. Give them the shirt off your back. He says elsewhere, if anyone forces you to go one mile, then even go a second mile. If anyone, give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. 
including your brother-in-law. Radically rewriting the Jewish law. Claiming new authority. So you're in good company. You're saying, oh, man, whose authority are you doing this? Because Jesus got asked the same exact thing. Whose authority are you doing this stuff, Jesus? Hold on to that. The authority of the Bible, then, is coming from this power of a spoken word. This is what we have to discover, what, what's going on here. John, Gospel of John, chapter 1, begins with these words. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Once again, if you hear the beginning of Genesis, John is deliberately saying the thought of God, the word in God's mind, is now going to precipitate. It's going to incarnate. It's going to become a human being. How? It is spoken. It is the embodiment of God's thought and word. The authority of Jesus in the Bible comes from the word. What in the world is this thing called the word? It's got to be bugging you by now. It bugs the tar out of me. Here's where our current philosophical worldview falls apart. Now, you know Dan's preaching when he starts using words like philosophical worldview, and this is where, you know, things get thick, okay? This is what we have to do in order to understand what's going on these days. Our philosophical worldview is failing uh, to understand how we read the Bible. We don't understand anymore the power of the spoken word in our culture today. Words have lost their power, all right? For thousands of years, words had power. You must remember back before uh, the printing press. You must remember back when people had special vocations and jobs, and they were to write words very meticulously, just so, on parchment or on paper or on papyrus. You had to be a specialist to handle a word. They weren't inundated with social media and news and everything barraging them. And television. Communication was important and it was cherished. Words used to have what is called, wait for it, performative power. Yes, if you look it up on your spell checker, performative will not show up. It is in the dictionary though. Performative, you just break it down, it means the word performs something. What is performative power? It's like this. Words have performative power when a judge speaks in a courtroom not guilty. That means the person will not serve time. It actually performs something. Not guilty performs something. Okay? Or words have performative power when a minister performing a marriage service pronounces, you are now husband and wife. They were not a second ago, but now they are. They are now one. 
Words perform a binding action. They perform something. When the husband answers, will you take this woman to be your wedded wife? And he says, words, I do. This is not just a contract. I mean, it has that element to it. and, and And it has a covenant feel to it. But moreover, the words are performative. They perform and accomplish and do a deed. They change the husband and the wife's identity. And we all know and understand the power of this when it gets messed up, when marriage gets messed up, and it hurts. Jesus is called the Word because he is God in the flesh. He is the thought of God, the Word, that same Word that was creating the universe, and the Spirit, uh, you know, conceiving in Mary. It is the word because it performs the actions of God. And Jesus will show up and perform the actions of God as a person. It's a little bit scandalous because he's a male and he's in a human body. But God is willing to do it in order to show his word come forth, love. To the blind man in John chapter 9, Jesus declares two words. Let's call them in quotes. He says first about himself, I am the light of the world. And then second, he tells the man, go wash your eyes, because he put mud in them, go wash your eyes in the pool of Siloam. Go wash in the pool. Two things. Something about him, something about the man supposed to do. Do action. When the man washes in the pool, he can now see. His blindness is cured. Now, we think this is magic or a miracle, But we misunderstand how the Bible would even mean this. This is not a miracle. This is a sign of God's word. Now, you can use the word miracle if you want. I'm simply saying that's not the language they would have thought of the way we would today, where we say miracle and we think it's something supernatural magic. It's simply the words perform the deed of restoring his sight. They have the creative power. The blind man did as Jesus said. He receives a sight. It is accomplished through the word. So why don't words have that same creative power now? Is it because we don't believe in miracles? Because we don't have enough faith? I don't really think so. But about 300 years ago, there was this thing called the Age of Enlightenment. The Age of Enlightenment. It was on the quiz in Western Civ and in world history. Remember? Yes, I hope you got a C on that. It was good and maybe even an A. Humanity was beginning to think of itself as enlightened during the age of of enlightenment, about 300, 350 years ago. Humanity was on this upward movement. Science and technology were going to chase out the dark corners of the universe. We were going to learn everything, including God. Galileo's inventing his telescope, right? And, and, And people are beginning to say, I'm not sure, you know, the earth is the center of the universe, Because we're beginning to see other round things out there. We're going to find out everything. The world was becoming a huge science project. And And it has its culmination around 1890 with Friedrich Nietzsche uttering that famous words, God is dead. He did not mean that in a negative sense. He wasn't trying to be mean. He was simply saying Humanity has graduated out of the need for God. We're past, we're over God. 
because the Uberman is here. The Superman, the super race of humanity has shown up. Man is awesome. And then, of course, we had World War I and World War II. Along the same time, about the, civil war, about the time of the Civil War, uh, biblical scholars and theologians are doing the same sort of science project, but now they're doing it to the Bible. And I'm going to put you up a poster child here of a theologian named Charles Hodge, who I had to study a lot, and he's a good Orthodox Calvinist. And he lived about the same time as Charles Darwin and the same time as the American Civil War and was writing and teaching at Princeton Theological Seminary back east. Uh, very conservative person, of course. And he is one of these type of theologians who would have understood the Bible as a science project. He says, well, if Darwin can come up with his origin of the species, then surely we can look at the Bible and we can understand the origin of the world there. And so they're going at it, all using the same tools of science. Okay? The Bible is now being viewed firmly as an encyclopedia of scientific facts. And what happens as a consequence is the text of the Bible gets split off from the action of that creative word, the performative word. The text is separated from its identity as the force of God. The word, in other words, loses its power. Even though good conservative people like Charles Hodge thought they were defending Scripture and saying it did have power, it simply turned into dogma. Soon enough, the Bible simply becomes this encyclopedia of information about God, about the universe, about all sorts of things. You can now pick up the Bible, since it's become an encyclopedia, and see if this doesn't relate to you. You can now take it and you can like shake stuff out of it that you need for life. I need to know about parenting. Shake, shake, shake. I need to know about marriage. Shake, shake, shake. You know, I need to know about uh, money. Shake, shake, shake. I need to know about health and why, you know, how to survive and live long. Shake, shake, shake. The Bible no longer has a huge story unless you kind of go to a class or something. They may say something about it. But people just scratch their head and they say like, just give me something to live by. That's all I really want. It's just another instruction manual at that point. Just like I believed in my early days. Not only that, since it turns into a thing of information, Jesus stops being a person and becomes a transaction on the cross. You've got a sin problem. You're condemned to damnation. We've got a solution for that. We're going to send Jesus to the cross, and his blood is now going to take care of that problem, and you'll be, you'll be set back on track. Salvation, atonement itself, becomes a transaction, a good economic, make sense transaction. It becomes a formula and not a creative force. It may change our lives, and many of us have been changed because of that, but it loses its power to transform, at least the way it used to. The problem with this encyclopedic scientific view of the Bible is that it loses its major force to change a life. And so when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, pay attention on this. When Jesus says, turn the other cheek, we now think it is a choice. I will or I won't turn the other cheek. Give to everyone who begs of you. Uh, That's a good idea. 
Not today. I'm a little short and I'm in a hurry. And besides, they probably don't deserve it. When the text of Scripture gets split from its performative power and word, and we begin to treat it as an encyclopedia, it loses its force to change lives. These days, we are bombarded with words. I'm not down on social media and the internet and television and all the rest of us, you know, the stuff we live in. I mean... But we have so many words today that it has all just become noise. Words are no longer special. Take marriage, for instance. Many folk these days don't understand why somebody would get married. Why? What's the point? Just live together. It's the same thing. Big deal. And Christians freak out because they think it's all, that's, a, that's a moral issue. It is a moral issue. But they've lost the power because they actually can't defend why they really think it's a, a real issue. The issue is, is because the words actually bind the people together, not just living together in sex. Why say, they say, why say, I do? What is the power in saying, I do, at the altar? The words fail to perform. And we walk in with a philosophy that already says, saying I do doesn't mean a darn thing. It's just blah, blah, blah words. Last century, uh, about 1920s, 1930s, very influential philosopher was writing at that time, Ludwig Wittgenstein. Ludwig Wittgenstein. You know we're in the deep weeds now when we start talking about Ludwig Wittgenstein in the 1930s. He's a specialist on language, using language to understand the entire universe, okay? He's very, very influential. I'm sure you've read all of his books. Ludwig Wittgenstein. I mean, you know you want to say the word with me. Ludwig Wittgenstein. Come on, everybody. Say it with me. Here we go. Ludwig Wittgenstein. Yeah. Woo. Wittgenstein morning. All right. He says words are speech acts. He's grasping for some other word for word. It's a speech act. Others following him, other theologians and philosophers have said, well, they're word events. The Bible's a word event. The Bible's a speech act. Saying I do, saying not guilty, those are speech acts. Those are word events. They, they, they make something happen. The Bible just simply calls it the spirit of God, the creative force and presence that makes things happen. So I give you all this because we cannot understand how to read the Bible unless we understand how we're already reading the Bible. We walk in with this scientific encyclopedic view of the Bible, and then we wonder why we, it won't change us, because it's all become a choice. We're like the old joke about the two young fish who are swimming along in the ocean and the old fish comes swimming by and he yells out, how's the water, boys? Swims on by. Two young fish keep on swimming. One of the young fish turns to the other fish and says, what the heck's water? We swim in a philosophical worldview that cannot understand word. They have no power. 
we swim in a philosophical worldview of the last 300 years, the Enlightenment. Science and technology will be the new El Dorado, the new utopia of the world. The Uberman has arrived. And now we're all just on that Star Trek mission of just kind of chase away a few of the bad aliens out there, and then we'll have perfection. No money, world peace, it's all going to be good. Pay no attention to those wars and violence going on. We're on the upward journey. You listen, listen to the news at night, and you will hear this progressive uh, enlightenment story told over and over by politicians and everybody else, both sides of the aisle. All right. I have in my hand a rock. Podcast people, I have a rock in my hand. I'm going to drop this rock. I know what you're thinking. Don't do it, Dan. Don't drop the rock. You have no idea why you're saying that, but you just feel it. But I'm going to drop it. I am. And I want you to answer right now in your mind, why does the rock drop? And don't give me snarky comments like the first service you said because you let go of it. I understand I'm going to let go of it. Why is it going to go down? Maybe it won't. Did you hear that on the podcast? You're thinking the rock dropped because of gravity. 9.8 meters per second per second, right? Galileo getting hit on the head with whatever he got hit on the head with, an apple or whatever the story goes. You are living in the Enlightenment because before the Enlightenment, at the time when the Bible was written and for centuries and centuries before that, you know why the rock dropped? The rock wants to go home. It wants to go home. It just went home. Where's the mothership? Well, you're sitting on it. You're like, that's stupid. It's gravity sent the thing home. You don't get the power of how the Bible is understood. You see, earth, wind, and fire. Actually, it's not earth, wind, and fire. You know, whatever. Um, Earth, water, wind, fire. It just didn't fit to roll off for the band name. You know what I mean? But earth, water, wind, fire. Why, when you light a candle, does the heat go up? You're like, well, because heat rises, and if I could remember my, you know, physics, I'd tell you why. He wants to go home. Why is the water sitting on top of the earth and not down at the bottom below the rock? Because it's at its home. It takes this sort of understanding to understand how we read the Bible because you're reading it with gravity instead of home. Nothing wrong with gravity. We love science around here at Lakeland. Believe me. Science and Star Wars, that's all we do all day long around here. (laughs) Believe me, 20 years, science and Star Wars. But we can understand that when the Creator spoke and parted the waters, and the dry land appeared. We understand that it was not a miracle the way we think of, like science would call it a miracle. It is just simply the nature of the word being spoke forth, and it has that sort of creative power. That's why Jesus becomes the word. He spoke forth. 
The heavens are telling the glory of God. The day-to-day pours forth speech, but not without words. John's declaring, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's all right there, and so on and so on. I am the light of the world, Jesus says, and it is so. He is the light of the world. There is, there is one more word spoken by God that I haven't mentioned yet. You. You. You are a word of God. You have been spoken forth into creation. I know you think your parents had something to do with it, and let's all honor them. That's great. But God made you. If you're struggling right now with your brain doing science, 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 and and, and this thing about this ancient sort of way of understanding... You're in in the right place. We've had success this morning. You are spoken into God. Why do we know this? Because Paul, writing in the beginning of his letter to the church in Ephesus, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, says this. He says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless, blameless before God in love. New Testament scholar Robert Mulholland uh, he teaches New Testament, so uh, he's a scholar about Greek and all this sort of thing. And I try not to do the Greek thing to you, but I'm going to do just a little bit of it here. <clears throat> Robert Mulholland points out that the word choose here, God chose us in Christ, has been smoothed over to make it work better with English because the original sort of language is rough. It actually sounds more like, chose sounds like forth from to speak. Forth from to speak. I think that's on the sheet of paper. Forth from to speak. Paul says each of us is spoke forth. You, you are a word of God. From the foundation of the world to be blameless and holy. To be the incarnation from God Almighty. You're a version of the word. You are in the mind of God before anything else. And then when you were born, you were spoke forth. You're from God Almighty. That's who you belong to. That's your home. If you were a rock, you go to God. That's where you belong. So when you goof up, when you sin, when you make mistakes, when things go awry, it's like you're a rock trying to float and it doesn't feel right. It's not just a moral issue on some sort of fundamentalist black and white sort of thing. It's a matter that when we sin, we don't belong there. And it messes with us because we want to go home to God. And we end up like Paul says in Romans chapter 7 where he says, why am I doing the very thing I don't want to do and not doing the stuff I know I'm supposed to do? And then he says, oh, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The word has realigned me to the word. I am a word of God. That's why we are drawn inexplicably toward God. This is why we have to dedicate ourselves and immerse ourselves in the Bible. But it isn't just enough, and it would actually be rather wrong-headed to just simply read the Bible 
for as a science book, as an encyclopedia. Nothing terrible of reading the Bible for information. We have to begin to read it for transformation. It is the script of your life. It is the script of you because it's where your home is. That's why people say the Bible is inspired. It's because it's reading your mail. It is the script for your life. It is the roadmap for your journey home. We hear these words from Paul, who's also appealing to Christians even in the first years after Jesus. And he's saying, you have to transform your mind. You have to get your head wrapped around this. You have to understand the word. He says this in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Now, over the last 200 years, if you're using your science mind, if you're just using those lenses, as good as they are, and they're great, you will immediately jump to the wrong conclusion and think that Paul here is writing about how we can behave. You turn it into a moralist thing, which is what we all do. How can I be good and acceptable and perfect? What do I need to do, Jesus? Moralism kicks in, and we miss Paul's main point. He's saying, discern. Put on the right lenses, and you will now see what is good and acceptable and perfect. It will be clear right in front of you if you have the right paradigm on in your head, if your mind has been renewed. You will discern and understand. This is how we have to read the Bible. This is how we must read the Bible. Otherwise, it won't make any sense. And you'll end up in some fight with somebody saying like, well, the Bible's true. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. Yes, no. You'll be doing that sort of nonsense. I don't know why you get in a fight with somebody over the Bible anyway, but nonetheless, we have to understand that it actually is all about transforming. How we must read the Bible becomes now very, very important if you want to understand how your word and the word of God are the same and are meant to be together. If we don't, we fall into moralism, which is the false religious self. That's a whole other talk. Who has turned the word into an encyclopedia of do's and don'ts in our own time? I leave it up to you to use your opinion. Try not to be too judgmental and vindictive. But I leave it up to you on the piece of paper there, the message notes, to think, what does it look like in my time and in our days to turn the Bible into an encyclopedia? And what is the result of it? Assess this for yourself. Discuss it on the way home. Think about it. We need to be the word of God because then we can change the planet, the original word of God that was spoken to being. So I'm imploring you then to read the Bible devotionally. Yes, you may read it historically. You can read it theologically. You can read it for information. But we have to read it transformationally. We have to read it devotionally. Slow down. Yes, this is a Dan sermon. I am telling you once again for I don't know how many centuries now, slow down. Life is too fast. When you read the Bible, at least slow down. Read a small part. It's not a speed race. Read a small part. Drink a cup of coffee. Sit on the porch or in your easy chair and just simply chew on it. Look out the window. Gaze at the grass growing that you're going to need to cut that afternoon. But whatever. Just slow down. 
Let it transform you. Reconnect with the Word. Live in a God-bathed world. Use science to worship the Creator as just another part of the evidence that the Word has been spoken forth. That's what science is. The original scientists, as we call them, 500 years ago, only saw discoveries as worship. They wrote it in Latin all the time. Gloria Deo. To God be the glory. I discovered Jupiter's moons. (laughs) Praise God. Now, if you can wrap your mind around this, if you can wrap your mind around this, then you're going to really understand communion here at the Lord's table in just a moment. And then we're going to do that, and then we'll sit down, and then we'll get out of here. When Jesus says, when he says, servers probably ought to come forward. When he says, on the night when I was betrayed, I took a loaf of bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Eat this. Do this in remembrance of me. How is it his body? It is the word that proclaims it being his body. Does it actually become it? Why would you ask such a scientific question? Who told you to ask that question? And after supper, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant. When you drink this cup and you eat this bread, you do it in remembrance of me. You understand, you are remembering, you're reflecting, saying, I know, I know at this point who I belong to. I want to go home. And here in just a moment, all of you rocks, all of you words of God are going to come forth and say, Ah, I remember who I belong to. I'm going home. I'm going to wash back out into the world this week. And then I'll come again next week, and I'll remember that I belong to God. My identity belongs to God. That's what we're doing. That's why the church does communion all the time. It's not just a wake for a dead guy. It's not just a memorial service. It is a moment where you remember once again and become a word of God. Powerful stuff. Would you stand with me, please, as we proclaim the mystery of faith with these words on the screen. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Everyone, Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Alleluia. The gifts of God for the people of God. Each day, may Jesus Christ be as real to you as this food and drink is right in this very moment. So, Lord, you've fed us, and you're going to send us out to be the light of the world because we are words. You spoke us in the being, and you have a story and a narrative and a tapestry that you are having us weave. May we do all that we can to fulfill that word with the one life we've been given each and every moment of every day. Christ, our Lord Jesus, we thank you for showing us how it's supposed to be done. And then even going beyond that and literally saving us. You are our salvation. And it is your name that we will go forward. And we all said amen. Amen. Stand with me, please, and we'll end with these words from the Apostle Paul.
where he just gets so excited in the middle of his letter to the church in Ephesus that he just has to bust out and just say these words. Join me. Glory to God, whose power working in us can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. Glory to him from generation to generation in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace, everyone.